Hello and welcome. I'm Naledi from Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. Find us at zocalopublicsquare.org and all the main podcast platforms. And if you enjoy this conversation, feel free to like it, follow us, or subscribe. We're about to hear from University of Virginia social scientist, Caitlin Donahue Wiley. She is the author of Preparing Dinosaurs, The Work Behind the Scenes, and joins us today to discuss the potential of volunteer contributions to the sciences. And I'm thrilled to introduce Issues in Science and Technology Editor-in-Chief, Lisa Marginelli, who will interview Donahue today. Over to you, Lisa. Thank you, Naledi, and hello, everyone. I'm Lisa Marginelli, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Issues in Science and Technology. We're a quarterly journal published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine and Arizona State University, and you can find us at issues.org. We're delighted to partner with Zocalo to present today's conversation, asking, can dinosaur fossils make science more accessible? Joining me is Caitlin Donahue Wiley, who explores that possibility in her recent essay for Issues, uh, which was about the many years that she spent watching the people who prepare dinosaur fossils. She learned about their work, their jokes, their Thursday chili parties, uh, and they gave her some ideas about how to make science more inclusive. So we're here to talk about that today. Caitlin is an assistant professor of science, technology, and society at the University of Virginia. She's the author of Preparing Dinosaurs, The Work Behind the Scenes, which is available as an open access ebook from MIT Press. Caitlin, thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks, to start Lisa. Off, hi. Um, to start off, I'd like to ask you, um, a question about what is a dinosaur. So before I, you know, I guess I've been looking at dinosaurs since I was about three. Um, and I'm wondering, your book really made me reconsider what a dinosaur is, you know? So they're not just a thing that needs to be, how do, how do we end up with a dinosaur fossil? Explain to me the process. What, what takes a thing from a big hunk of mud or rock to something that you see in a museum. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, that's what drew me to write this book too. Like there's so much that has to happen before a fossil can be something that we can use as a piece of a dinosaur, right? That we can even understand as a piece of a dinosaur. So yeah, I'm gonna skip the like, what happens to get the animal <laughs> into the ground because that's beyond my pay grade. Um, but yeah, once an animal dies, it ends up in the sediment, you know, lots of things happen. If we're lucky, it becomes a fossil. And then if we're really lucky, somebody walks by it on the ground. If we're really, really lucky, someone spots it as a fossil. Okay, so there's already layers of selection happening before this piece of rock becomes a scientific object. And then ideally that person will collect the dinosaur bone and so dig it up, protect it in ways that it can survive a journey to a museum or other kind of lab. Um, and that's where things really get interesting, I think. And so, so tell me about that. What happens now? Yeah. So this 
packaged bone arrives in a lab, it's usually mostly encased in rock still because fieldwork is messy and it's hard to do precise rock removal. Um, so usually the fossil preparator um, was not the person who collected the bone. And so they don't really know what's in this package. And so they open it up with a power tool. There's a lot of stress around that because they don't know where exactly the fossil is and they might actually hit it with this power tool that they're using to saw open um, the casing around it. And then <laughs> you're starting to get a sense of how many steps there are. Yeah. And then the preparator has to recognize the bone, which is easy for them and very challenging for the rest of us. So they've gotten good at recognizing bones somehow. Yeah, they have, they call it the eye, which is not about your eyesight. It's about your expertise and recognizing, distinguishing fossil bone from rock. Cause of course, fossilized bone is mineralized with the minerals that are around it in the rock. So they are essentially the same thing and, and identifying which is which takes a lot of experience. Um, a lot of it's based on texture, sometimes color. Um, so you have to have like a sort of a feeling for it? Yeah, it's a sensory experience. And fossil preparators can just glance at it and know, but, but most of us are, you know, volunteer fossil preparators take a long time to get that expertise. Now, you know a lot about fossil preparators. That's what your book is about. And, uh, but when did you actually, you, did you start by pre preparing fossils yourself before you studied fossil preparators? I did. I was yeah. one. What was so, your, what did you do? Um, as a high school student, I did a summer program at the University of Chicago um, on paleontology, where they like took us out to South Dakota and we dug up bones and it was amazing. And I loved the fieldwork aspect of it, the being outside and in the dirt. And, you know, the scientists would point at the ground and say, oh, there's a bone <laughs> and it would be completely invisible to me. Um, but we didn't learn anything about fossil preparation. And then after that program, um, the professor who led it, Paul Serino, invited me to volunteer in his lab because I lived in Chicago. So I volunteered in his lab as a high school student um, and one of his undergrads trained me how to prepare fossils and I did it kind of just for fun. And then I went to the University of Chicago and so they hired me as a fossil preparator. Um, so yeah, I was very much a practitioner before. I mean, I mean, that's why I know how fascinating these people are because I was watching them do this incredible work of distinguishing fossil from rock from very meticulously removing the rock so that the fossil can be seen and also repairing it, right? Fossils are crushed and they're really fragile. And so the work of making those fossils stable enough to be held and studied is absolutely essential to vertebrate paleontology. And so I was watching these technicians do all of these work, all of these incredible tasks, and yet they weren't authors on the papers. They didn't have PhDs in science. Um, they sort of were treated as staff, like support staff. And I just, I just found that really confusing. So hence, you know, 20 years later, um, I've been thinking a lot about their role in science. Okay, let me go back. What's interesting is you said that they, they spend a lot of time taking crushed, they, it's hard to, first of all, it's hard to distinguish the fossil from the bone. And then they're taking all that. So they're doing that. And then they're finding things that are crushed and they're gluing them back together. And then they're creating a bone that you can hold because you couldn't hold the bone when it's actually in the rock. So the dinosaur fossils that we see in the museum are really the result of their sort of 
this internal sensory experience that they have of how to figure out what's a fossil. And then there are other sort of puzzle-based experience of how to put the, the rock together to make it turn into bones. Otherwise, it's just like smush. It's just stuff out there. It's not, it's not these impressive dinosaur fossils. Right. And so you and I know how, how incredible those skeletons are, but the work behind it, I think, is just as interesting, maybe more so. Yeah. So, okay. So you started in high school, you started cleaning fossils. And then by um, college, you were cleaning fossils. And then how did you become interested as a science and technology studies scholar in following the, the preparators? What is this, what is, what is the strange role of the, the preparators tell us about science that's interesting to you? Yeah, there was a moment. Mm -hmm. um, as an undergrad, I took a semester off to uh, go to London basically and hang out. I got a work permit and I volunteered at the Natural History Museum there in their preparation lab. And I showed up kind of hotshot. You know, I'd been doing it for a few years. I thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and I, I, you know, asked for a pin vise and a particular kind of glue and the preparators at the Natural History Museum were horrified. They were like, oh no, we don't use that here. <laughs> so basically I had to relearn how to prepare because in the UK they have very different expectations of the tools you're allowed to use and the materials you're allowed to use. So in the in Chicago, we use super glue, this chemical called cyanoacrylate, which dries on contact and it's very strong. And in the UK, they think that's wrong, that you shouldn't be using permanent substances on fossils because what if you want to study them with a new technique that hasn't been developed yet and you can't get this glue off. And so it was a totally different philosophy of how to prepare specimens for study. And I just felt very disoriented by that. like how can we compare fossils that are prepared in such different ways? How can we not record these very different ways of preparing specimens in scientific papers? Like, wow, how can we not know this crucial metadata about the evidence that scientists are using? So that was when I started to think, you know, ask these sort of more philosophical questions about what is the role of transforming nature into evidence? So, and that, which is science. Science is how you transform nature stuff disorganize things around you into some sort of idea of knowledge or evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And what you had discovered kind of accidentally was that Chicago prepares a fossil different than London and probably other parts of the world also prepare the fossils differently. Does that mean they have different dinosaurs or what, what, is, what does that mean for, pe for people who aren't deep in the sort of what the meaning of that sort of science is? What does that mean? It's an example of pluralism, which is a concept that we use in my field, which is the idea that there are many ways to do things <laughs> and that that's good, that a diversity of techniques can be good because it means that if you can come to the same conclusion based on data that were prepared differently, that means your conclusion is really robust. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're coming at it from different angles, so plurality of views. And so that's the way I'm I, I understand it that um, scientists, for example, think that fossil preparation is basically irrelevant to their knowledge claims, to like how they understand that fossil. Right. They agree that it's super important, right, to make that fossil, fossil researchable in the first place, but they don't seem to recognize um, 
that different techniques matter for their work. And I think that's because of this pluralism of this idea that um, if we get to the same conclusion, then it doesn't matter what came beforehand. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So tell me a little bit more about that. So there's, uh, does everybody have like an army of fossil preparators who aren't, are they trained as scientists? No, no. So they can sort of come off the street. They can be, they can be high school students. They can be retirees. They can be anybody, but basically if they take time to learn the skills. For um, volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and how do the scientists who are the paleontologists, how do they treat the, the, the fossil preparators or do they even talk to each other? They have very different territories. So if you look from the outside, you would see the scientists, right, with their names on the papers. They're the ones bringing in the grants that fund the lab, that pay for the preparators in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And so the preparators technically work for the scientists. Um, and that is very evident. And of course, in, in academia, in research, we have a very strict hierarchy of, you know, PhDs and job status and, you know, hierarchical assignments. And technicians are below scientists, power-wise. And so scientists talk to preparators that way. And so again, like scientists know that they absolutely rely on preparators work to be able to do their research, but they think the preparators work for them. And mm -hmm. the preparators sort of agree, um, but they more see themselves as working for the sake of the fossils, that they are the protectors of these specimens that sometimes scientists are in a hurry, right? They're in a lot of pressure, under a lot of time pressure to get things published. And preparators often want to slow down and, and take longer to make a bone more stable or more revealed. Um, and so preparators do oppose scientists. You know, scientists would never say, you know, I want you to use this tool on that fossil mm -hmm. because they consider it too low status. It's, it's not their problem what tool the preparators use. Yeah. Whereas the preparators see it another way, which is the scientist has no idea what tool I should use on this fossil. How dare they even think about telling me that? And so it's really interesting, like different interpretation of these official hierarchical roles in the sense that the technicians are kind of empowered by the scientists staying out of it. And the scientists think that the, technici the technicians are just working for them and doing this sort of rote work. There's, uh, that is like really rich. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in there. So, um, <laughs> um, First of all, do the scientists cite the preparators in their papers? No. Okay. Sometimes so, they're acknowledged, but not always. Uh -huh. And they don't get to be on the papers as one of the people who was involved in preparing the evidence. Correct. And there's no methods section in these papers that describe how the specimens were prepared. There might be methods about how the specimens were studied, but not preparation. Interesting. Um, and then how did the how do the preparators feel? I mean, it seems like it's kind of, I mean, if they're doing it as volunteers, it must be fun, right? Yeah, the volunteers are kind of another thing. You're right. I was thinking about staff preparators, you know, professional preparators. Okay. Um, but you're right that the, sorry. No, go ahead. You're right that the staff and the volunteers have basically the same backgrounds. And most staff are volunteers first and then get hired. Um. But yeah, there are way more volunteer preparators than there are staff preparators. And the volunteers very much identify as volunteers rather than as 
preparators because they really work for the preparators, which is okay. interesting because you might worry that having a volunteer workforce would replace technicians who don't have PhDs, who don't have particular credentials, you know, specific to fossil preparation. But I actually, I found the opposite that having volunteers in the lab empowers the preparators, the staff preparators, because they get to control a workforce, which is not typical of a, of a lower status job in research. So yeah, again, as you said, lots of weird, rich things happening in this community. So, yeah. Uh, so do the preparators sort of have, I mean, when you went to London, did you have to like get accepted by them? That sounds like kind of a little bit like a club in a way, <laughs> like they have a lot of techniques and they probably, and, and they see themselves as working for the fossils, which is an interesting idea to to see yourself as working sort of for the fossils, for truth, for what is right, for what is beautiful about a bone. Totally. Okay, here's something else that hit me while I was reading this. It reminded me of something I might see on Masterpiece Theater or on the BBC. It seemed a little old fashioned that the, the scientists don't come off too well in this in the, the sort of being so hierarchical. And then you've got all the staff sort of underneath the stairs feeling committed to some other vision. And, you know, what's, I, I guess, how did you end up feeling about it as you studied it? About the role between the scientists yeah, and the preparers? These, these, this, these, this tension and these two different roles and, and the, the feelings of hierarchy and, and the little struggles. I think you said somebody, some people sometimes would hide fossil, hide bones from scientists or something like that. Yeah. Um, I started this project thinking I was going to liberate fossil preparators, that they were under-recognized, you know, oppressed, marginalized, proletariat, and I was going to come and show the world how amazing they are and that they deserve authorship. <laughs> and so... I very quickly realized that that was not how things worked and that preparators have a lot of power in the lab and that they like it that way, that they don't care about being authors in the way that I thought they would. They didn't care that they don't have PhDs, right? And what they care about is being able to choose their techniques, right? Be in charge of their tools. So the scientists will say, I need that fossil prepared. And the preparator will say, okay, and then make all of the decisions after that. What tools, what kinds of glue, how much to take off whether to leave it in the rock or not. And the scientists have some say in that, like they might say, I really need to see that part of that bone, please reveal this section. Um, but they're not gonna tell the preparators how to do it. And so I, in the book, I call that, um, it's the idea from sociology of labor of craft control, that the uh -huh. beauty of being a craftsperson is that you get to control your work. You have autonomy over your decisions. And that that's not what we think of in science, right? Science is supposed to be protocol following. It's supposed to be kind of routine so that we can make things comparable. And that's just not how things fly in vertebrate paleontology where every fossil is unique, right? And so you need a workforce of people who know how to adapt their techniques to each individual fossil um, to make it accessible to scientific you know, ways of thinking. Hmm. It's really interesting because it kind of shifts your thinking about what science is. I mean, it's interesting. You went in there expecting to liberate people and you ended up having a different, a sudden different view of science. Totally. Yeah. And that's what I argue for in the book that we, if we think about all of the steps of, you know, translating nature into knowledge, actually we get a really different picture of what science is and who does it. Mm -hmm. 
right? For all those steps in between. So tell me like what in the public mind or maybe in the scientist mind is a scientist? I mean, we, you know, the, the crudest cartoon of them is that there's somebody in a white coat and they're elitist. Um, but what, how do these, how do the fossil preparators challenge the idea of who's a scientist? Oh, I love that question. Yeah, I, um, I have a PhD. <laughs> I am a social scientist, so I am one of them more than I'm one of the preparators. Um, and, you're, and you're right, like my field of science and technology studies has long showed that science is very hierarchical. There's a, a set path that you have to study, that you have to follow rather to sort of get into the club. There's lots of discrimination along the way, as we well know. Um, There's something called a pipeline. Tell us yeah. about the pipeline. The pipeline. So I am a social scientist in an engineering school. So we think a lot about the pipeline, which is the idea of getting students in, you know, say at the beginning of undergrad, or really you have to get them sooner. And you're, you're there in the pipeline is going towards being a scientist. And yet we lose people all along the way. And most of those people are women, students of color, you know, first generation college students, and they're disproportionately lost from this pipeline of future scientists. And it's such a disaster for society to not have a workforce of scientists who represent, you know, our population, our world. And so one way to get around that, I think, um, is to recognize all of the work that goes into science that doesn't require a PhD, right? That leaves me and my colleagues out of it, um, like the skill that vertebrate paleontology depends on to reveal their data source um, and lots of other jobs in science that are absolutely crucial, but that aren't done by scientists that don't require the formal title of being a scientist. So, so mostly I'm thinking in terms of a PhD, it also means you have to have a job as a scientist, which is not easy to get. Um, how else would I define it? Yeah, I'm careful in the book to not say paleontologist too much because lots of different kinds of scientists work with fossils. Um, so I didn't want to offend any, you know, leave out any of the geologists or the whatever who are, you know, ecologists who are studying fossils. So even within science, there's a, a variety of identities. Right. And so the, I, the preparators kind of show that there's all sorts of science that's done by people who aren't, uh, who don't have the title scientists that, that, um, for example, I've spent time in labs where there are technicians who understand how everything actually works. And the person who's the principal investigator is like, uh, you know, go get me some data from, from this chunk of frozen stuff and, and come back to me with some data about the genes. And the, the, that technician is actually the person who makes the knowledge. And then the other per, the, the principal investigator kind of processes it. So one of the divisions, it seems, within science is between the people who uh, make or clean or process types of knowledge and the people who have the theories. So that's another sort of distinguishing thing between science and non-science. That's a way that science distinguishes itself in certain ways. Yeah, nice. I agree. And I think preparators would agree too that they really are focused on the thing, the evidence, the data source, and then they hand it off to the scientist and, and that's the end of it for the preparators. Like they're really, yeah. they express no interest in theories of evolution or theories of adaptation, you know. So the scientists then sort of take it to the next level. Okay, let's sort of talk about 
this whole idea of how how this understanding this can help us make think about making science more inclusive. It seems like one of the things about um, you know about the fossil preparators is that they are like uh, you know they're the ultimate citizen scientists. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about fossil preparators and and whether or not that is citizen science or whether it's something you know what sort of what the possibilities are there for understanding them in that context. Yeah, that's a good question. So the staff preparators would not say that they are citizen scientists. They are professional fossil <laughs> preparators. Um, but the volunteers, some of them do say that they don't use that word, but they do say that one of the reasons they like to volunteer in the fossil lab is that they are contributing to science. They're mm -hmm. making science possible through their labor, but they always say they're not doing science, right? They're, they're making the data. Mm -hmm. And in some ways that's mostly what citizen science is, right? That, that um, regular people are out collecting data through a bio blitz, for example, where you go out and collect specimens over your, in your backyard, you, mm -hmm. you know, keep track of how many birds you saw and report it to Cornell's bird lab. So they're collecting data. And another way that citizen science, citizen scientists contribute is um, like data sorting. So mm -hmm. if you know, like Galaxy Zoo right. is a website where lots of scientists- That's what, what Galaxy Zoo does. Yeah, it's a website where anybody can sort of log in and look at massive data sets, mostly of images. So the original ones were of galaxies <laughs> and you were supposed to look at the image and point out like label on the photo where the, the galaxy is like circle the points of light, which is hard for a computer to do. And then the, the scientists would get those sort of slightly cleaned images showing the areas of interest and then work through what that means about nature. And so, yeah, I think citizen scientists are well involved in data collection and data sort of the beginning of data analysis, but then the rest of it really still belongs to scientists. And I think that's starting to change with research projects that are led by regular people, mm -hmm. not scientists, so community-engaged research or community-led research, um, often on issues that are important to the community, like water quality or air pollution. There's lots of research, lots of studies um, by people who live um, in what's called fence-line communities, so near industrial power plants. Um, and they're testing their own air quality, for example, and then reporting it to the EPA to demand higher standards. Right. So part of this is kind of like the, the fossil preparators kind of show us how everybody could be a scientist, how it could be part of being a citizen is sort of being a scientist. Or at least contributing to science. Yeah. Contributing, right. Contributing to science, maybe not being the scientists themselves, but be involved in this larger process of knowledge production. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about what you're describing, the fossil preparators and the people um, looking at the at, at Galaxy Zoo, is that we we talk we tend to think of science as being done somewhat on a level of machines, of there being an infallibility. But when you're describing the science, the the fossil preparators and the people doing the Galaxy Zoo, and the people out there doing the Audubon bird count. You're talking about looking at something with a tremendous amount of knowledge and having an intuition about what you're looking at. And that's a skill that can cross all sorts of fields. Yeah, 
Absolutely. I would say that science needs us to contribute. Otherwise, they're going to get really narrow results that don't matter in the world. And so part of the project of this book is to point out that there's space for everybody in science and also to argue that science already relies on people who are not scientists, who have, you know, the, oh, sorry, my, <laughs> my automatic light just turned off. Um, I think it's on now. Yeah. It's back. Yeah. <laughs> and people who are not scientists who have crucial skills of, you know, craft work, the artistry of carving a fossil, right? Which is not how they would talk about it. Um, but those embodied sensory skills are already crucial in all kinds of science, even the lab, you know, the white coated protocol following work, like that still relies on crucial skill and experience. Um, so I'm trying to call attention to that as a way to remind science that they need us and that we have skills that, you know, can make science better, more socially relevant, more inclusive. So the last thing, and we will go to audience questions soon. I hope that people people can share their questions and, and I will ask you them. But, but one of the interesting things is, is that so many museums have this like glassed in place where the fossil preparators who include volunteers work. So like they've managed to somehow turn science inside out. Like, like most times science happens behind doors that you have to enter with multiple key cards. And here, when you go to the science museum, you see, you know, all these people in t-shirts kind of doing things with dirt and little tools. And, you know, there's dinosaur cartoons up on the wall and stuff. Somehow they've turned science inside out. Did they intend to do that? I don't know. I love those labs. I have written a couple of things about them because they're so fascinating to have a display lab that is really a workplace, mm -hmm. but also on display. So there are things that happen in that lab that do not happen behind the scenes. <laughs> and then there are things that definitely happen only behind the scenes because they don't want the public to be watching. So for example, mm -hmm. if they're doing anything that's likely to be catastrophic, like if they're, if they're carrying a giant whale skull that's full of cracks, they're going to do that in the backstage lab because <laughs> they don't want to show, show themselves as unprofessional or like have the public witness that kind of um, terrible break. But on the other hand, like, yeah, that's more of a view into science than most of us are ever going to get. Yeah. And so while it's not like science truly, <laughs> it's not a true transparent picture of science, it's pretty darn close in the sense that, as you said, it's got all kinds of people working there. There's dirt, there's coffee cups, you know, there's people like having a chat. It doesn't look like the sort of elite clean space that we might imagine as a science lab. And of course it's populated by volunteers usually who are just like the people on the other side of the glass. And often they'll come outside and like chat with visitors. So I think it is a way to show that science is human work, that it's everyday work, that it can feel like a job, you know, it's not this sort of magical thing that's behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. So did you have an aha moment kind of when you realized that this field could be something, this field could teach the rest of science that is really looking to develop more relationships with the public? Did, did you have sort of an aha moment where you realized that there were solutions buried here? Um, that's a really great question. I don't think I did. 
I think I, I was amazed at how many museums have glass walled preparation labs and no other kind of glass walled lab. So it seems to have been chosen as this sort of quintessential example of a science lab, which is really interesting considering that none of the people in there are scientists. Mm -hmm. um, so I found that really fascinating. And, if, and I would spend a lot of hours like standing in the gallery, watching the public, watch the preparators. And that was really interesting to see how surprised they were. So everybody would say, are they real? Uh -huh. You know, are those real people? Are they robots? <laughs> or they would knock on the glass, right? Or try to get them to get the preparators to respond because it just was so out of their expectations of what you see in a museum, right? So they were kind of like a, um, I mean, they're sort of like in a theater. It's like a, it's a theater of science as much as it is a, you know, truly revealing in some ways or people perceive them as that. Yeah, it's, yeah. There are some labs that are purely a theater. They're just demonstrating, you know, they'll hold up the fossil and the tool and sort of talk about uh -huh. what they're doing. Um, but most of them are workplaces where the preparators inside ignore the public because they're trying to focus, right? They're doing this incredibly meticulous work on fragile fossils. And so, um, yeah, it's, I think it's jarring for people to see that. And that's why people spend a lot of time watching, right? Mm -hmm. As you said, it's, it, it looks like regular people. They're doing what, you know, they're using tools that look kind of familiar, right? Kind of like dentist drills. They're not something yeah. super high tech. There's no computers around. Like we can kind of understand what they're doing. But at the same time, the people inside are just doing their thing. Mm -hmm. Mostly <laughs> with some things kept behind the scenes as right. would you or I, right? So um, I want to ask, I, we have some audience questions starting to come in. I want to ask you some, uh, just one sort of, you, you point out that the fossil preparators and the, the way that fossils are prepared show us that science is like, it's a community process of making facts. It's a community process of assembling knowledge from different communities, different people, different sorts of, it interacts with different hierarchies, different sorts of data, evidence gets all mushed together. And you say that on the one hand, this is like fascinating for its own sake, which is sort of how you got involved. Um, but it seems like understanding that can help us accomplish some big goals around for science. That's my hope, yeah. yeah. So if we recognize that it relies on a community of workers or a community of contributors, I think it would help us open up science and invite people in, right? Have more lab tours, have more glass walled labs that aren't just fossils, but other kinds of science. Um, have internships for people who have no scientific background to follow a scientist around. So I'm not, I'm not like my goal is not to make every person a scientist. I don't think that's what we need, but rather for all of us to understand what science is in practice um, so that we trust it, so that we're not afraid of it, so that we're willing to engage with it and help make it better. Mm -hmm. um, that, that struck me as like such a fascinating idea that there's something, you know, I guess cynically, my first thought about the, the, the glass things is, oh, it's kind of a display thing. It's, you know, it, it is a kind of a theater, but then you realize it's also about trust. I mean, transparency is trust. Having people who you can see is the ability to trust them. And we've been having this ongoing now going on two year conversation about how do you trust science? And the fact is you have to take a lot of it on faith because it happens behind, 
multiple blocked doors and we don't understand how the evidence is, is assembled. And, and we ourselves this past two years, in fact, today itself are watching science and knowledge be assembled on the fly by a giant community that's worldwide, that's compiling all sorts of data and pulling it together and assembling this reality that, that we will then revise tomorrow and revise again and <laughs> revise every day going forward. And so the knowledge that science and knowledge creation is a community act of squishing and, and of, of refining and, and sorting and, and discussion, um, seems like it would be really, really valuable. Yes, because that's what science is. I think you're absolutely right that most of us don't know that because we've never seen it happen so publicly as in the <laughs> case of COVID. Um, but yeah, of course, of course, right? There are major debates in science that, you know, are the dinosaurs, were the dinosaurs warm-blooded or cold-blooded? Right. Like the community shifts on that <laughs> every couple of decades. And of course, it's a really long time scale and some of us don't really care. So it's a different way of like, why would you know that the community is squishing that knowledge together in terms of fossils when it's not that relevant? But in terms of COVID, it's super relevant. And I can, it, yeah, this is the problem with transparency, right? When you start to share the realities of doing work, <laughs> then people take science down off that high horse and think, oh, it's, it's just regular people. So I'm, you know, I'm going to decide for myself whether it's real, which is not what we're saying, right? We need experts to tell us how to interpret those data. What I'm saying is we also need, the experts also need us to tell them what data matters, to tell them what questions matter, and to tell them what information we need, what knowledge we need, as opposed to the scientists deciding what facts we get. Right. So it needs to be two-way and the transparency about the uncertainty can actually help to build trust. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting because trust seems to really get built over a very, very long time. It does. Yeah, it's not a short, you can't just show up and create trust. I wanna switch to some of the um, audience questions which are really interesting. So one of them that, that really relates to this is communicating science data is really important these days. Is there something these fossil preparators can teach us about community, communicating science's goals and findings, et cetera? Oh, I love that, yes. Fossil preparators totally act as mediators between scientists and the public. And they don't mean to, they don't sign up for that. They just sort of end up doing it because of their role on, in, this, in these display labs and they end up talking to the public. Um, but the preparators basically have the same scientific training as the rest of us do. And so they translate for each other, they translate for themselves as to like making sense of what the scientists do and how. So yeah, I think their role in paleontology could be replicated in other sciences to have someone who's a mediator, right? So who's contributing to the research and has their foot in the real world and can tell us what, tell the rest of us what they're working on. Uh -huh. That'd be awesome. That's great. That's really an interesting thing. Wouldn't you love that um, job? Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, here's in more of a, here, here's, here's another question that sort of relates back to your initial, um, your initial goal of setting free the preparators. So what specific things do you think need reform for a better model for science research labor to emerge? 
better citation practices, wages, hierarchical shifts, et cetera. So what are some of those things? I, I would say transparency would be the big one. So in the what case of paleontology, yeah, in the case of paleontology, it would mean having preparation methods in papers. So my thought is if, if scientists have to publish what happened to that bone before they studied it, then they're gonna take it more seriously. They're gonna pay some more attention. They're gonna give it more funding because they're gonna to have to tell the world that their preparator ran out of glue and couldn't finish or something. You know, like they'll have to be a little bit more invested in preparation. Um, and so I think, yeah, publishing methods, it would be awesome. The, the argument that preparators make is to put that information in specimen records. So maybe publications are too high, high value to scientists. It's better to have metadata of how a specimen was prepared in the specimen record, which is a database, many of which are open access to the public. Um, so then you could see what happened to that bone along the course of its sort of post-life as a specimen. So that would be one awesome way that would translate across fields in terms of making it really clear what you're doing. And one, one way that this trend is catching on is through videos. Mm -hmm. So some scientists are starting to post videos of themselves or their technicians like doing the experiment or running the technique. Um, and then they link to those videos in their papers to say, like, if you want to know how we did this experiment, go and watch this YouTube link, which is amazing when you think about it, right? Like that's sort of taking away from that very trust laden sentence of, you know, the results were measured and instead saying, here's us in the lab measuring the results. And so that would be one necessary for scientists to trust each other too, while it also points out the similarities with cooking. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not joking entirely about the videos, but there are things where one technician can get a result to happen and another one can't because they're doing, there's like really funny techniques involved in science and getting results. Totally. And that's why technicians are super valued informally by scientists because they know that one is going to produce better data than another. Yeah. So yeah, I would say the other thing is funding. Preparators funding. are not paid well. Um, many technicians are not paid very well. Volunteer programs are amazing, but often they're run by preparators, which is a big ask, <laughs> you know, for someone who really just wants to work on specimens. So yeah, more funding, more funding for preparators, more funding for volunteer programs. And I think that could apply to other fields too. Uh-huh. And it also, it seems like it needs to be deliberate. It can't be an afterthought. It needs to, there needs to be funding. There needs to be some attention paid to it. Yeah. Um, another question in a similar vein, and then we'll go to some of these, there's other questions. Um, do you think this kind of research labor should be paid work or is it beneficial somehow for fossil preparators to remain volunteers? Oh, cool. I think we have to have it paid because there are so many fossils in the world that need to be prepared. So we're just never going to have enough people if we only have volunteers because volunteers, you know, work when they want to, they might work a couple of hours a week. They might do it for a year and then disappear. So we definitely need people who are paid doing it in part to like carry on the techniques and the skills and train each other. Um, but the beauty of volunteers is really that they're a public outreach effort. Mm -hmm. And so they are contributing specimens to the research lab. And also they're carrying the research lab's work out to the world. So preparators talk about volunteers as museum friends or lab friends in the sense that they are advocates for the lab, for research, for um, the museum, the institution. 
because they go and tell their friends about it, you know, sometimes they donate money. Um, and so it's a form of scientific education by having volunteers in the lab as well as free labor. Mm -hmm. um, another question is, are there rock star preparators? <laughs> oh, awesome pun. Yeah, <laughs> there are. Does everybody know who they are? Does, is everyone like, oh yeah, she can really find the scales on them, you know, I don't know. Um, what are those long fish that look like a dinosaur? Uh, <laughs> sturgeon. She can really find the scales on a sturgeon, you know, like, is there some, are there people who are just like famous that way within the community? Within the community of preparators, yes, they are. But I don't think it reaches beyond that. I think scientists will always say that the preparator they work with is the best. <laughs> But I don't, I don't think it, I don't think the fame reach, reaches um, beyond preparators, although this book might change that. So Connie Van Beek found all those fish scales on the sturgeon, which is in chapter four. Um, and I, I used her name with her permission, whereas all the other preparators I gave pseudonyms to. Um, but yeah, there's, yeah, definitely rock stars. Her name? I'm sorry. How did you choose to use her name? Oh, I wanted to use her papers. In the scientist paper, so I couldn't cite the paper without it being really obvious uh, right. who it was. But they okay. both gave me permission. Okay. Um, uh, there's. I just want to announce that there was a poll question that was asked: What do you think is the most, the best potential benefit of citizen science? And most people responded that it's more responsive to society, which I think is a really interesting, an interesting answer, and may reflect who's watching. Um, and then the other, the other question, the other answer, a couple of people said educating people without a degree. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> I had a question. Do, do the preparator, is there like prepare, fossil preparator con? Uh, do they all have, do they go to conferences? Is it, is there anything that's officialized where they intermingle or does everybody sort of stay? Is there somebody at the Field Museum in Chicago and somebody at the Natural History Museum in London and somebody at, you know, I don't know. Yeah, they're pretty isolated, um, but they have created some communities for themselves. So the, the big one is at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, which is a science conference. Um, they have a preparators sort of committee and a preparators session of talks. And so most, well, many preparators meet at that meeting every year um, to sort of catch up and give some talks and whatever network. And from there, they've created, the preparators have created their own association called the Association for Materials and Methods in Paleontology. Oh. And they're treating that as their professional group. And they have a meeting, a conference usually every year, maybe every other year. So they're not, they're not big and that's not, certainly not all fossil preparators, um, but there are venues to bring people together and have them share their work. Oh, that's really interesting. And so, and then when they get that, do their, do their, the places that they work for send them or are they going under their own? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is like, is it this, this must be the professional preparators. So it's not hobbyists. People aren't going. It's I think what I'm trying to figure out is this, the, is this more like comic con for fossil people <laughs> or is it more like a, a scientific conference? It's is more it like a scientific, 
Okay. It's more like a scientific conference, but it, but volunteers certainly go often. They're the ones who are like the most happy to be there because they don't know very many other people who are doing it. Interesting. Okay. Um, another question is, uh, for the future, how do you want to expand your own research? Oh, thanks. What a nice question. So this book and my dissertation were about technicians and the roles that they play in science without much credit, without much recognition. Um, and so I've built on that since by looking at students and how they contribute to research labs, particularly in engineering, because I work in an engineering school. Um, and I'm looking at the role of community volunteers in research um, on a totally, so yeah, three different areas, <laughs> paleontology, engineering, and then this other project is about building sustainable infrastructure in the Arctic. So in the grip mm. of climate change, how do we build buildings and roads and utilities that can serve a community's needs? And that's very community engaged in the sense that like, we as researchers don't know what to do unless the community tells us how we can serve them. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking at how people contribute to knowledge from all of these different perspectives, like, you know, as technicians, as volunteers, as students, as community members. It's really interesting because, you know, when your book came in, I thought it was about dinosaurs. It's and really confusing. It's not, though. No, but what I was going to say is, like, it seemed like it was about something that happened a long time ago. But actually, this issue of taking science out of the labs, of getting citizen guidance for how we manage and mitigate climate risk, of um, expanding, uh, expanding who's in STEM, all of this is very much of this moment. In fact, there's, uh, you know, the, the uh, um, Office of Science and Technology Policy in the president, you know, in the White House has, has put out um, memos about this. This is actually, I mean, there are high level meetings about how do we do this? And, and there's also a lot of concern within science about um, how is this going to change science? And you've kind of been watching this, you know, in a way since well, for almost 20 years, but you had a ringside seat at just as, as you went into labs in high school. Um, and then you've been kind of watching this take place now in front of you. And what, I don't know, tell, tell me what, what do you think about this in this larger context of, of these very big goal, very big and important goals? I think vertebrate paleontology is an awesome example of how we can do this, of how we can acknowledge all of the work that science relies on and how we can encourage more of us to contribute, you know, maybe as volunteers, but maybe just as fans, you know, you watch the research happen, you follow it on the internet, you seek out um, some more education so that you understand science as a process. Um, Cause I think you're right. Like this book was never about dinosaurs. It was always about people. Um, because I think that's who science is for, right? Like we're not trying to understand the Cretaceous era. We're trying to understand the world that we live in. Like we are very self-centered creatures. And so even the most sort of socially distant research relies on what we think we want to know, what we think we need to know about mm -hmm. nature and about the world. So yeah, I, I am trying to use fossil preparators as a case study to illustrate what science should look like in the future. Do you find that scientists have very specific concerns or questions or worries about this? 
Um, I think they are not, the way that science is rewarded is not set up to celebrate work with communities, to celebrate having volunteers in your lab. And that's a real shame. And that's on us, right? Like as a member of the university, that is on us. We need to change those reward structures to make it about science for everybody, science for social good, not science for the scientists. Mm -hmm. And I say that as one of them, right? Like I wrote this book so I could try to get tenure. Um, but I also want to make science serve us in a way that it hasn't always done the best job. Mm -hmm. um, all right, we have a few minutes left and I'm gonna ask you, uh, I'm not seeing more questions coming in, but if, if people have questions, throw a question up. I'm gonna ask you a little bit about the chili parties because the chili party is a really interesting thing about how communities police themselves, how they, how they, how they create a center. Um, and just tell me a little bit about the chili party. Yeah, <laughs> chili Thursdays. Uh, they happened at one of the labs that I spent about two months studying um, and the fossil preparators would invite everybody in the department to their lab for lunch. And they would make chili in this like huge, you know, crock pot and it would cook all morning and it would smell awesome. And like it would, you know, waft down the hallways and people would come out of their offices and say like, oh, are we having chili today? And it was like highly anticipated. And so I just thought it was so striking that the preparators were to organize this party that was then attended by, you know, scientists, <laughs> museum administrators, collection managers, students, volunteers. And they would be like crammed into this dinosaur lab, surrounded by fossils, eating chili and like chatting. And how that just was such an awesome image of what, of like who really does science. Mm -hmm. You know, scientists are in there for sure. <laughs> we need scientists and we need all of these other people who are there too, not getting the credit. And the fascinating thing for me was that if like the preparators were watching who showed up. So if you didn't go to Chili Thursdays, like your preparation request was going to get bumped down the line or like people were going to spread stories about you not being a good colleague because you didn't show up to support the fossil preparators party. And it happened every other Thursday. Yeah. That's a lot of chili people had to ask. <laughs> I mean, had to eat. Um, <laughs> but what I think it's also interesting is like, you know, it's a lab, there's dirt. There's value, like there's priceless dinosaur bones. You know, you can't put a value on the bones or the, or the, 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 you know, scales or whatever they're they're dealing with. And then there's people walking around with the chili, so they also managed to, like, skirt the basic rules of the lab. I would assume. Totally. I mean, there's chemicals everywhere, and I I said to one of the preparators, like, aren't you worried about people spilling chili on the bones? <laughs> And she just said, she said, no, they're just rocks. <laughs> Meaning like they've been around for millions of years. Like they're going to be fine for us to eat around them for an hour. I just thought that was so funny and such a shift in the rest of that preparator's day job, right? Which is a hundred percent focused on <laughs> saving those rocks and making them useful and, you know, stable. So in that moment, yeah, this, this shift really happened between the specimen, the object and the community, the power that preparators had to call together this group of people and like host them. So yeah, I tried to use that scene to just illustrate 
that preparators are not marginalized. <laughs> they are not oppressed, even though that's what I thought because they were missing in scientific papers. Um, but instead they have these other forms of sort of soft power mm-hmm. that are very effective for what preparators want to achieve. Yeah, it's a really interesting vision of science because it's not the one that scientists would necessarily tell. And they might, you know, you could go to that lab probably and not hear from anybody that there's the food on Thursdays and unless you heard it from the preparators. Um, so we have some poll questions that have come in. Uh, one poll question is, can the field of scientific research benefit from science, citizen scientists? 80% of people said yes. I'd like to hear from the other 20. Uh, apparently 83% have said yes. So there's 17% out there say no, and I'm curious what they have, why. Uh, and another poll question is, um, should scientific research acknowledge the contributions from people outside of academia? And 100% of the people in the chat said yes to that. Interesting. Um, which is funny, because it, it sounds like you're saying that the fossil preparators feel like that might ruin things. Right. They don't want to be authors or, or they're like, it would be fine, but I don't care about it. Mostly they want funding. You know, they want reasonable work expectations um, they want good specimen records. They want preparation methods and papers. They do want that. Um, what else do they want? But yeah. They I, I'm standardized and taken away from them because somehow getting recorded involves the power changing. That's true. Yeah. So the preparators argue for metadata about the specimens, mostly for the sake of the specimens. So that, Mm -hmm. you know, people in a hundred years will go and look at that bones and say, I wonder what glue is in there. And then these records would show that. So they don't really care about having their names in the records, which I find surprising. But I guess what was, what was my conclusion was that preparators were seeking out other kinds of acknowledgement and getting it. I mean, they Mm -hmm. are the public face of paleontology in those glass walled labs. None of those people are scientists. (laughs) And so in that sense, like preparators are already enormously empowered. And again, they, they control the volunteer workforce, which is mm-hmm. impressive. They have complete autonomy pretty much over the techniques that they choose and the tools that they choose. And so I think they're fairly satisfied without the sort of standard scientific forms of recognition, like authorship, like PhDs, like job titles, um, which is hard for me to understand because I'm, that's my world. <laughs> So from their perspective, yeah, we really should be going to people who contribute to science as non-scientists and say, like, what what would make you feel recognized? Right. And community is part of that. Part of what they're doing is community and part of what the, the it's an interesting thing because science has sometimes in this country been posed as being against community or it tends to sort of flatten out what happens with community, even though, of course, scientists are themselves multiple communities. Um, But it's interesting how much the fossil preparators are invested in the different communities. It makes me think of, um, there was a woman in my, in the town where I live who, uh, she passed away a year or two ago. And I think she lived to be over 100. But for maybe 70 years, she kept track of everything that um, she kept track of, of when she first heard frogs every year and which kind of frog it was. And she kept track of which bird showed up. And this turned out to be absolutely vital information for understanding our town, understanding the changes that are happening 
you know, and it was sort of in the service of the world. I love that. Yeah. We have a final question and then we'll have to wrap up. And that's what is, what has been the response to your book? Um, I was most worried about preparators responses. <laughs> um, so far they've been very supportive and like kind of amazed that I wrote a whole book about them. <laughs> They're a pretty humble bunch, you know, modest bunch. Scientists, I haven't, they mostly have that same sense of surprise of like, we wrote a book about fossil preparators. Um, but I don't think any of them have read the book yet. So I don't know what the scientists think. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what my field thinks either because we move a little slower. So I don't know what my STS scholars think about this. Um, so yeah, I guess the jury's still out, but there is a book. <laughs> MIT Press published it. So it must be you know generally okay. Um, and I would love to someday in, in the post-COVID world, I would love to have some kind of event where I could meet people who are reading this book and and see what they think like what did I get right what did I get wrong how does it apply to other fields what are the takeaway lessons for their experiences mm -hmm. I would love that so you'd kind of like to create a community or a chili party around the book oh, perfect. around big ideas okay <laughs> on that I think we're gonna close so it has been such a pleasure talking to you um, and thank you so much for this conversation and to everyone in the audience Thank you for listening and asking such great questions. This was just a wonderful sort of visit into dinosaur bones and, and all the things that we overlook every day um, and, and how science uh, actually comes together. Um, you can visit Zocalo's website, zocalopublicsquare.org for a summary of this talk, brief interviews with both of us and um, many other great articles and events. You can also rewatch the video starting tomorrow, I think. Um, you can also visit Issues in Science and Technology, issues.org, where you can read Caitlin's essay, which is titled, What Fossil Preparators Can Teach Us About More Inclusive Science. And thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful evening or afternoon, wherever you are. And it's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, everybody.